Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my honor to introduce and have an amazing conversation with Daniel Kopp. Daniel and I have known each other for the last couple of years, and we have had some very robust conversations about life, meaning, death, financial therapy, and probably a couple other things along the way. So Daniel, just anytime I see his face, I'm just like lit up. And I know by the end of this interview, you're going to understand why he's such a great guy. He has such a huge heart for helping people, and his wisdom will definitely be worth taking the listen. Daniel, welcome to the show. Ed, it's a privilege to be here. I'm excited. Anytime we have a conversation, like you said, it always leaves me inspired as well. Well, let's see if we can, we'll, we'll leave this conversation inspired and hopefully whoever listens will also feel inspired. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know we're going to have a, a wide ranging discussion, especially. All right. So can you let people know a little bit more about yourself and what you're up to these days? Yeah. So the shorter version of this is I'm primarily a fee only financial planner. So I specialize in working with two groups, younger widows generally those in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, with kids in the picture, dealing with financial anxiety as they step into the household financial manager for the first time, often because their spouse was the one doing it. Now, they usually have a faith-based perspective, and they're seeking help. So, love to come alongside and partner with them as a thinking partner, as a financial advice giver, and just someone going along their grief journey. One of the reasons why I specialize in that area is because I'm a widower myself. We can talk more about that in a minute if you want. The other side of my practice is specialized in active duty military. So I'm an Air Force veteran after almost nine years of active duty. Love the personal finance side of things. And so when I got out, this was a natural transition to go and back and serve that population. Wow. That's incredible. And I'm sorry, I'm having even, you may see I'm having almost a slightly delayed reaction for listeners. As Daniel's talking, I'm thinking about, oh, I have a client that Daniel actually really could probably work with. That would be a great fit. So (laughs) already my brain is turning. So yeah, so younger widows, and that comes out of some of your own life story that hopefully we can unpack and share a little bit more so people really uh, know. And then military background. So take us back. You were in the military. What were you doing in the military? What, What was that experience like for you? very different from this. It was not at all what I do now. Uh, My primary duty was as an air battle manager. So it's kind of like air traffic control. So generally over combat airspace. So spent time in the Middle East over the past many years. But I also, of course, was an officer. So a leader responsible for taking care of my airmen. So they're very different what I did. But I've always loved personal finance. I did a lot of um, volunteer counseling and, and working with my airmen, like helping them make their first car purchase or understand like reviewing their rent contract and saying, no, you shouldn't sign that here. This violates this part of some military lending law or something like that. Um, You know, I was love that. I just didn't know it was a career. (laughs) So ultimately I stumbled, but quite by accident across the certified financial planner coursework, 
I started talking to people. I found out about XY Planning Network, and then that was like the floodgates opened up. Oh, I could do this in a way that was ethical, that was honest, that aligned with my life values. You know, I think I, you and I probably both take for granted, me maybe more than you even, I don't know how much you take it for granted, so let me not be presumptuous. Fee-only financial planning is the platinum standard in my mind, right, of ethics. Like platinum being better yes. than gold, okay. like it was just the bee's knees. But there's still a lot of people that don't really know what a fee-only financial planner is and is about. So can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, there's so much confusion in the profession, industry, whatever you want to call this thing that we do sometimes. Sometimes it feels like one more or the other. Yeah. Um, and fee-only is a very small percentage. of. I mean, the last time I saw, I think it's around 3% of people who work in financial services. So it's a very, very small. Fee-only just means that I never take any commissions or kickbacks or any kind of third-party fees for anything ever, period. So the big organization is the NAPFA, the National Association of Financial Planners, that's is, I think there are about 3,600, 3,700 planners now that are part of that group. Now, there are other business models that can also be ethical and under, operate under the legal fiduciary standard as well, always working in a client's best interest. But there's just some conflicts of interest. So, you know, if you recommend a product and you are paid by a commission, there's an incentive to do that where, in my case, either flat fee or for some people in the fee-only world, assets under management, right? There's a Incentives are generally speaking more aligned with the client's best interest. Yeah. And the, I mean, those are things that consumers of financial planning may or may not be thinking about. I don't know that most consumers of financial planning are really thinking about how fee structure may incent the way that advice is given. Um, right. And that's part of the challenge is people can just go out and offer advice. And most people are, if you're likable, nice enough, trustworthy enough, seem smart enough, okay, let's do this. But for those really informed consumers, they start to realize that there is a difference yeah. in knowledge and education. And I want to highlight and, and congratulate you publicly. You just finished your master's in financial planning at Kansas State, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That's right. Yes. And their financial therapy program as well. Oh, you just said the magical words, financial therapy. That's actually <laughs> why I brought you on the podcast. You know that. Yeah. But just again, this is self-serving and I'm okay with that. But there really is a continuum of educational experience even around financial planning. And the segment of financial planners that have a master's degree in financial planning is incredibly tiny. I don't know what the numbers are, but they're very small. And so for you to join that is really an elite group that says, we want the highest standard of education, not the minimum standard, which is a bachelor's degree in um, anything <laughs> Yes, anything. And literally, you could have a master's degree in underwater basket weaving and take the CFP requirements. You don't even have to do that to be an advisor. So anyway, I don't want a soapbox too bad on that, but congratulations on that. And the emphasis around financial therapy. So what is financial therapy? How has that changed or involved the way that you think about the financial planning process? Mm, boy, this is a deep one. <laughs> we'll see how long we go. <laughs> financial therapy to me is about meeting the client where they're at and helping them overcome some of the emotional, sometimes mental, like the psychological challenges that are intertwined with finance. So back to the work that I do with clients. Oftentimes when I'm working with my widowed clients, they're dealing with deep things that go beyond grief. I mean, grief is hard enough on its own. It's both hard and hard work. 
but oftentimes financial anxiety piles on top of that because of past money stories, the rules that were caught, not necessarily taught growing up, these belief systems. Oftentimes the money widows that I'm working with are dealing with a money script or a money story that says what a money avoidance or money is bad. And so when we start going into the financial planning process and we do things like evaluate cash flow, like income and out outgo, um, look at investments or talk about taxes. Before we could even get there, right, we have to deal with the anxiety and undercover like why is this topic not only just so hard, but like emotionally debilitating? So borrowing from the world of mental health and using some evidence-based practices and interventions to pause on the financial planning part, right? And meet the client where they're at. I mean, I have a client where we worked for almost a year and we never truly built the financial plan because we spent most of the time talking about these financial therapy, these emotional topics. And only then was she in a position to move forward with confidence for the actual planning process. So many people in this profession, of course, right, the answer is a math problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And some clients are ready for that and great, but many are not. And so my privilege is to use some of these financial therapy techniques to help people get to that place if they're not ready. I really love that. And, you know, I think just in, in the course of my own life, this last week, my wife and I were doing some tax planning and talking with the accountant. And he said, well, okay, based on this and this, you should be moving money from here to here. Well, it was all money from my wife's business into retirement accounts because I didn't have cash to do that, which like internally I was blowing up inside. My own money shame got triggered pretty hard. And mm, yeah. You know, like I'm trying to hold it in. At least I know that I have money shame and can feel it. Like, you know, I'm a work in progress. But I think what's so exciting is to know that there's more and more professionals like you that are aware of and open to and willing to work through different emotional responses to a wide range of money topics, whether it's cash flow in and out or something like taxes, right? I mean, I think that's so what the beauty in my mind of being a financial planner is you really learn about, you know, I guess some people argue five or six major areas of personal finance, but cash flow, investing in retirement, taxes, insurance, and estate planning. I, I think those are the big five. I mean, some ad education planning. Yeah. So as you're working with your widows through that, what are some of your Mm, favorite interventions or ways of helping them get unstuck? What are those go-to activities, if you will, or ways of understanding that help you help them get unstuck? Yeah. And I'll paraphrase or or frame this in the sense of like, this is going to be very unique and different for each individual, but oftentimes I don't even tell them that it's financial therapy up front. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Yep. There's a, there's, you know, a lot of things, I'm sure you've talked about that many times on this podcast before, about framing, right? How do we approach a problem for a client? So the gateway for many clients of me is financial planning, right? I need help making the life insurance money last or paying for kids' college, right? But there's something else going on. So oftentimes, it's just those open-ended discovery questions and not coming in with an agenda other than, I'm curious to learn more about their story. And starting with things like, tell me about some of your first money memories. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, let's go deeper. Tell me more about that, right? How was money between you and uh, your spouse while he was still alive or something like that, right? 
unpacking that. Whoa, 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 slow down. That's a really big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that one. You're working with, this is context, right? So important. Mm -hmm. You're working with a widow. Maybe she's received an inheritance or not an inheritance, but a life insurance settlement. Maybe she hasn't. And probably the outcome of even that is probably very significant, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, that's some of the research work that I did at Kansas State in the master's program was about like this idea of um, even going back to 9-11 where this was studied after the settlement funds were paid out, like the study of blood money and people just didn't want to have anything to do with it in many cases. Um, you know, life insurance in that is meant to be a gift of love, of support to provide for your family if you can't be there. But even knowing that fact, it can still be debilitating to look at it and say, I don't want the money. I want my spouse back. Right. So unpacking that alone oftentimes is a session or two. That I'm just so moved at how deep you are into understanding and thinking through something that on the surface, you know, you hear, oh, life insurance, and it's easy to kind of blow off and not that big of a deal. But for people that have lost a spouse, let's just play best case scenario. Happily married couple, life insurance in place, husband dies, wife's 50. They don't have all the assets they need yet for her to be financially set. He leaves, she gets the life insurance money. Now she's financially complete, right? Like, she can go on living her standard of living. Even that is going to be tough, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and then the deeper reality is I would imagine, you know, life being it is and couples, there's a number of people that are like not fully happily married, happy-ish or unhappily married. And then their partner dies and they're financially dependent on them. And there's no life insurance in place. How much more complicated things get. Yeah. to face your new financial reality. When you're working with widows, how often do you find that your clients have life insurance? There was some form of life insurance proceeds that were in place for them. And were they adequate enough? More often than not, they're not adequate enough. I mean, when we look at statistics across the country, less people, not enough people have enough life insurance, generally speaking, um, especially in the age segments that I'm working with, either because it's tied to an employer option, right? And people change jobs and it doesn't always come with, or people just underestimate or they think even just term life insurance is too expensive. So I do a lot of pro bono work. And the number one reason why I have to do that is because there is no life insurance in place and there are debts to cover income loss. And, you know, if there's kids in the house, we've got things like Social Security Survivor Benefit that can help provide some level of income support, but usually not enough to replace for a long enough time. So there's a lot to unpack there because now you're dealing with some potential bitterness, resentment, anger, or especially in the role of like, so in, if the widow is stepping into the role of man, household manager and they weren't doing the finances before, and now they're discovering all this stuff out for the very first time. I thought he was taking care of this. He didn't. Complicated grief. Complicated grief. Definitely complicated grief. And I mean, it really speaks to, you know, my big mission in life is financial intimacy. If I can help more couples foster financial intimacy in their life, the better. Because financial intimacy touches all these big areas. Yeah. And, you know, I want to put men and money on the pin board and come back to it in just a few minutes. But when we think about life insurance funding and having that life insurance conversation, 
what's stopping people from getting a true needs analysis and seeing the value of life insurance, especially term that on the whole seems incredibly affordable as a percentage of income? Yeah. Well, I mean, money and death are taboo subjects, right? You combine them together and you start talking about your death. <laughs> like, you know, you know it, it should not necessarily come as a huge surprise. And then you add on that stuff like an antiquated industry that requires reams of paperwork and faxes and, you know, blood tests and somebody coming and weighing you. Like, I mean, uh-huh, I, I hyperbolize uh-huh. a little bit. Yeah, the profession has moved forward a little bit, so it's oftentimes you can automate underwriting now with policies that can get underwritten in minutes. But it's it's still a challenge, right? And you see, you have all these things working against our inertia, which is the natural thing just to do nothing. So, life insurance, and especially like the longer you wait, the more expensive it gets as you get older. Still cheap, right? As a relative overall, and as health issues come up, you know, so. My message to the audience is if you don't have enough or you never had that done, right, get help. Um, Lifehappens.org is a great website to go to, and it gives resources and helps you run through a calculator there. Just understand, like, what your needs might be and see if you have enough. Lifehappens.org. So it's a nonprofit that helps people evaluate their life insurance need. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funded by life insurance companies and things like that. So they, they have a, a vested interest, but ultimately, the, in my opinion, they're, they're aligned there with providing ultimate needs. Right. And and then, you know, kind of taking that one step further for those that are listening, life insurance and life insurance planning is one part of holistic or comprehensive financial planning, right? So if they're working with yes. you and you're taking them through your financial planning process, you're going to hit the insurance track and you're going to talk them about what level of life insurance do they have disability insurance health insurance auto home all the different insurances right that's that is part of the service and then it's not a decision made in isolation but it's a decision made in understanding of income where you're at in life your overall net worth Mm -hmm. family support structure what kind of college do you want to provide for your children all that kind of stuff wow what have you found to be most helpful to help people get into that conversation about their own mortality? Yeah. So this is the interesting side of my practice, right? Cause I have widows and then younger couples who are in that financial planning stage. So one of the best things I love to do is tell stories because that helps bring data to life, right? Scenarios. So my own story of me and my wife, Sarah, and what we went through, and how having those conversations ahead of time before she died made the process that much easier. So breaking it down as a gift of love, as an act of something you can give your spouse ahead of time. And also just letting them know like so many things in financial planning or personal finance, that's not really about dollars and cents. It's about the hopes, the fears, the dreams that we attach to them. So these are tactics, life insurance, but we're really talking about how you love your family how you want to provide for them. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? If you weren't here, you know, a visualization of what you would want their life to be like. So it's very much oriented around the relationships rather than the dollars. So would one activity you do with clients is to kind of take them through a visualization of, let's imagine a life in where you're no longer here with your spouse what would you like that to look like for them? What, mm-hmm. what experiences yeah. would you want them to be able to have 
and get them to start talking about it. Yeah, and that flows from the very first conversation that I had with clients, which is goes down to core values and like understanding deeply what's important to them, right? And then so I can tie it back to, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Client, you told me that X, Y, and Z is important to you. Let me help guide you to that place. Here's some things we need to think about. But yeah, visualizing, like even the idea of like, imagine you're the guardian angel floating over, like what would their life look like? Yeah. Would they be able to maintain the same standard of living that they have today? If not, what would that be like? You know, again, regret minimization is one of the things that I try to help clients think through when evaluating financial choices and and weighing options. Like imagine yourself in the future. If they're equally equal choices, you know, like which one would you regret less? Oftentimes that's a better way to frame it. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Imagine yourself in the future. If they're equally equal choices, you know, like which one would you regret less? Oftentimes, that's a better way to frame it. I don't think I've ever heard the word combination regret minimization. It's not original to me, but at the moment I cannot remember where I learned that from. But I think it's, I mean, it's very powerful. It makes sense to me. And so what you're saying is part of the process of financial planning in some cases is regret minimization. Yes. We're talking right now about life insurance, but I could see this showing up in a lot of different elements. Any, any, any kind of savings or spending decision. Imagine yourself in the future and you chose choice A over choice B, this is what it might look like, how would that feel? When I'm thinking, I mean, I'm going to estate planning. That's one of the, those things that, you know, so many families don't openly talk about what the estate plan is and, you know, what kind of regrets can get opened up by the way you structure it. Yeah. It's an interesting way to frame it. And then what you also said, I think I heard you say is um, kind of that future self, what would your future self want? And I'm mm-hmm. flashing back, but you and I were both at the XY Planning Network conference in Denver last month. And uh, Dr. Sarah Newcomb of Morningstar was giving her incredible presentation and all yes. her research. And one of those things that just stands out in my brain is um, around the future self and the people's natural um, orientation around future self and then their overall net worth. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, what was her survey question? It was something to the effect of how far into the future do you see yourself financially? I think she added financially to it. Yeah, it was, it was days, weeks, months, years, decades, generations. That's right. And, and the skew was heavy towards days, weeks, and months. Most people were in that area, yeah. And the, the data showed that their wealth accumulation was substantially lower Mm-hmm. Yes, compared to those who are focused on decades and generations, was dramatically higher. I mean, strong correlation, very strong correlation. And so, 
when we talk about this issue of regret minimization and we talk about financial planning, financial planning is inherently trying to psychologically take you from your current everyday living experience, which I think what's interesting is there's also some psychological research that says living in the moment is probably the healthiest thing for you to do. (laughs) Yes. And that's the tension of financial planning. Right. Perfect. Right. The tension, because there's some good that comes out of seeing yourself into the future and the numbers bear it. Yes. Right. But if we live only decades and generations into the future, we miss the present. And I'm here to think that all the cliche is, well, the present is a gift. It's a present <laughs> it because is. it's a gift, right? Like that, yes. I don't know that phrase, whatever. Uh, so this is yet, and uh, Daniel, these word, well, this word combination came to me recently is financial planning. It can be an act of financial therapy. Mm, yeah. Right. Because it's improving your relationship with money that we're, literally using the planning process to heal and improve your relationship with money. We know that if you take the time to really plan for your future, you have a much better chance of having a brighter outcome. We also know it, you know, especially if if you're in your forties, that exact dollar that we project today will not be the exact dollar you end up at in your sixties, but it's a close approximation. Yeah. And that's one of the beauty of working with a, trusted third party to come alongside is that thinking partner that guide in the changing landscape is a recognition that you're you're outsourcing some of that future planning to live more in the present at least that's what i've noticed with clients right because i'm not really selling financial planning that's that's the method the goal is confidence and peace of mind and the ability to understand the trade-offs and be at peace with that today because We can give every dollar a job once. We can spend it now on things that are important to us. We can set it aside, let it grow to spend or give away in the future, right? And when you have somebody, at least that's what I've noticed, especially working with my own financial planner in the past, like having that person to help you understand and balance that trade-off now is a way to reduce the cognitive load and be more present. Hmm. Well, there's just so many good pieces in there and I'm just so glad. I mean, I, I'm smiling, you're smiling. I hope that people as they're listening can sense that this is a, a conversation of deep care and con- concern, one from someone that's uh, has compassion for, for other people. And yeah, sometimes we throw in these little technical words like cognitive load. <laughs> yeah. and, but I think people know that like maybe they've never heard that word combination cognitive load but we can't also financial planning we can't keep the whole picture in our mind at one time very few of us can i don't know anybody i mean even michael kitts is arguably one of the smartest minds in financial planning like i don't think he can keep it all in his head at once well, even if you could, right, even if we can, right, we still have our own biases. And to the point of what we were talking a little bit earlier, even before we started recording, like, I'm not on this financial journey alone. Like, I have my spouse with me, and she sees different money differently. We have different money background. So having somebody to come alongside as that third party, that neutral portion that we can approach with making a joint plan all the better. So let's talk about that a little bit because that's something I also hear from my my clients in my couples therapy practice is that we know that you're looking out for our both of our best interests, like that you care about both of us. 
And I imagine as a financial planner that you hold that same orientation, especially if you're working with a couple is you're not looking for who's right or wrong in this circumstance as much as what's valuable to each person and how do we help the two of you find some common ground when there's a difference about what to do financially. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, and, and and a lot of mirroring back to them what they've already said and just reminding of them and helping them see past, you know, the the one obstacle that they may be stuck on, right? And reconnect them to a shared vision that they've had at some point because they, they partnered together. Right? <laughs> There's a reason why you guys got together whether you remembered or not. Yeah, and, and differences are going to be there and differences of opinion can exist. Um, it, it, and Wait, say that I mean, one again. I want to hear that loud and clear. Say that again. <laughs> differences exist and differences of opinion can coexist in a financial plan for sure. <laughs> we haven't talked about it on this podcast, but you know I love me some attachment theory and that is secure attachment through and through is that there's space for differences and we can, it, it's okay. So yeah. I'm sorry. I just wanted to slam on the brakes, hit that, excellent, talk about excellent. that one. Look at that right there. We got to look at that. Look, honey, right there, that one. Okay. Sorry. So yes, working with couples, you sit as an outsider watching, listening, hearing both of them and processing who are these two people? Why are they saying what they're saying? What are they not hearing coming out of themselves? What is their partner not hearing from them? Or how is their partner maybe misconstruing what they're hearing? Like you can hear their partner, I would guess, in a more favorable light than their partner sometimes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right? Because you don't, you haven't been hurt by their partner. <laughs> well, I don't know the history, right? Especially in the beginning of a relationship, right? They're both coming to me as blank slates and I'm just here to absorb and learn. Oh, you really have taken in so much therapist. <laughs> oh man, yes. And and the funny thing is, like, again, back to my point about I like I don't explicitly say this is financial therapy, but so many times after a client meeting, they'll be like, "Wow, this this felt like therapy." I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> success!" You know, because it's just about helping them understand themselves better. And I, I may not specifically mention it before, but like my greatest gift from going through the therapy program was understanding myself better right and that gave me emotional regulation right to meet clients and not get sucked in and and not take sides or at least have controls around that at least recognize when you are predisposed to wanting to take one partner's side or (laughs) another And, and this really is something that's really important it's kind of an insider joke so let me let people in on this right And I heard this, overheard this in the coffee shop shop the other day. This guy was talking about, well, my wife's a therapist and I don't have a chance of possibly winning. And I've had other people, couples, you know, in my friend circle talk about like, yeah, I really want that therapy session. And I'm like, that's not the point. But we don't. So as couples therapists, uh, couples therapists are trained to not take sides. They're literally trained to to try to hear each person's side, just as you were saying, Daniel, right? And reflect it back to that person or reflect it back to the partner with maybe some of your own words so that they can take it in. But unlike, I mean, I have had so many couples want me to be judge, jury, and executioner. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, not going there because that will, that will not help the two of you grow and, and find that common ground that you really ultimately want. So, um, 
you, you highlighted, Daniel, that going through this program changed you and you use the word emotional regulation. So, how have how have you changed in your relationship with money? What does that mean to you? Is there a practical example or story where you can say, like, I'm clearly functioning with money differently now than I was before? Yes. <laughs> okay. So, by nature, I have always been a saver. Um, like, from the smallest, earliest childhood memories, I can remember, like, putting all my um, dollar bills and coins in my little plastic bank. I was the oldest of four, so I had younger siblings. I learned about this thing called interest, and I lent money to my siblings at interest and collected it for the Bank of Daniel. Like, I mean, this is this was me, right? And I didn't spend money on myself, like because I was save, save, save. I mean, I started investing. My grandfather taught me about dividend paying stocks. Like, I mean, this is just something I fell in love with naturally. <laughs> But it, it also had some negative connotations. So my money script primarily comes down to this money vigilance, like watch over, guard, you know, uh, must protect. And for early, a, a lot of part of my early 20s and stuff like that, especially like I missed out on a lot of things because I was not in a mood to spend. And so back to the idea of what was important to me, like I had never really studied and like realized like, family time and connection and deep, meaningful experiences with friends and people I love and care about is more important than growing my balance so high at this stage of life, right? Again, I didn't have the 30,000 foot picture to look and say like, okay, yes, I'm on track if I save this and confidently be able to spend the rest. It's one of the things I love telling clients, like save this much and that keeps you on track for your goals and be able to confidently spend the rest because that was something I struggled with a lot. And it was only after I finally got to understand a lot of my own money story and, and things going back to my father and my uncle and my grandparents and like my family tree and where all these messages came from was I finally able to step back and say, ah, now I know where these impulses have been coming from and now I can do something about them rather than just reacting and especially with my marriage. So, Sarah and I were married for five years, and I made a lot of financial mistakes. I was the saver. She was a spender. We had quite a lot of disagreements about money, right? Uh, yep. I'm now remarried, and um, Anna and I get a chance to learn from my mistakes beforehand and approach this very differently, where instead of a disagreement, it's a, let's go back to what's important to us, and how do we think we're doing? Are we spending and saving in accordance with that? Rather than, the accusatory, you did this, and I don't like that, you know. So um, those are some the most important things that I've walked away with. That's so, so cool to hear you talk about growing and your vulnerability. I mean, I really appreciate your willingness to just name. Yeah, Sarah and I, in my our first marriage together, we were oriented differently. I was a saver, she was a spender, and that just led to endless conflict for the two of us. And now as I'm remarried and I've gone through this program, I'm able to bring a little more balanced approach to a more balanced approach. Yeah. And then Daniel, I'm going to push on this just a little bit. And I hope it's okay. Of course. Uh, you're talking about, it's just in my nature, this saving, you know, interest, but I'm, I think it's in your nurture too. Yes. That, that is, I, I would be remiss if I didn't include that. Uh, maybe um, so. That's maybe the English teacher in me. That I'm, it's funny that I would even say that I'm an English teacher. If you read people that are reading my blog post, are like, Ed, you are not an English teacher. I know your grammatical mistakes. I know you try your best, but anyhow. But I, I, I really say that more to highlight that 
I think that's what's really been interesting for me in a, such a large part of financial therapy is it's, I'm not just the way that I am. Like, it's not just my nature. It's my nurture. It's my environment has a profound impact on shaping who I am yes. and my experiences. And it's, you know, I'm not saying nature doesn't have some basis on who I am. It absolutely, of course, does. But if we deny or don't look for how nurture and experience and context have, has shaped us, we're going to remain very blind um, to a lot of who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. And, you know, I, I've yet to find a couple that I'm working with where I can't find at least nurture explaining some part of why they're showing up the way that they are or not yes. showing up the way that they are. Like, so really it's, it is a big deal and I don't know if it's appropriate, um, but I'm going to ask because, you know, that's, that's me. Is there a story that you could share about you? You named three men in your family, your dad, your uncle, and your grandfather that shaped some of your money story as you went back and looked at it. Is there a story there that you could share that would help us understand how these um, senior men in your family shaped your relationship with money? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So when I think about my dad, he definitely was very frugal. We grew up in a single family or a single income family such that my mom stayed home and provided what we needed both on a home education front and then just all the other logistics of life. So not a lot, huge amount of money to go around, but so I definitely learned how to save. And so probably some of that nurturing there. Whereas and looked at some of the ways that my father treated my siblings and I was very much all about fairness, equality. Like we all had to get exactly the same. And it always was struck me strange growing up. Like, why is this such a big deal? Like, I don't care. Like so-and-so, you know, my sibling could get more. It, it wouldn't bother me. Like, that was not necessarily my personality. And going through the financial therapy program and going through the money genealogy tree and looking that, and then interviewing members of my family now, looking back, realizing that there was some real tension growing up between my dad and his sibling, my uncle, about perceptions of fairness, financially and otherwise, between my grandfather and him. And so how that showed up in my life was just, I didn't understand where this was coming from until I had the ability to step back and see it from a bigger family tree. That I, I am smiling ear to ear and I, I appreciate your willingness to share a little bit of your family story. I'm, I'm always hesitant to ask because our family stories are private, right? And, and I want to respect that privacy. And, you know, a lot of this work too is not about trying to make family members look bad, right? It, it's not about blaming them or shaming them or being critical of them. It's really... We, we may start from that place. We may have some of that hostility. I'm not saying that's your case, but just in general. But really what we're trying to get to at the heart is understanding, compassion, forgiveness if necessary. Mm -hmm. And who am I? Where did this come from? And fairness and justice in the family is such a huge theme. And you know, you being able to track back and be like, oh, because there was some sense perceptions and because fairness is always perception, <laughs> yeah. right? It, there is no other way for it to be. Those our parents' experiences shape how they then parent us. The challenge is as kids, we don't know that. 
and it's hard to even understand that conceptually. Yeah. Right. We don't know that our parents, all their life experiences, and you know, some parents try to say, oh, well, back in my day, it was this way or that way. And even if they do do that, you still don't quite get it as a kid. <laughs> don't have the context to understand it either. No, no, that's right. And so, you know, what's interesting as we're having this conversation is I was preparing a blog post for this up for an upcoming week. And what I was talking about is one of the adult developmental tasks, I think, is going back to our families and getting clarity on what was going on during our childhood and why were things the way that they were. Right? That helps us mature psychologically to be proactive in that process. And so that's part of that exercise and, and would be another thing that I imagine you may do with some of your clients is if they're really stuck, like, hey, go back and have a conversation with mom or dad or stepdad or stepmom. Hmm, As, yeah. Assuming there's, it's a safe enough relationship that they're not just a completely toxic, dangerous person. Um, but even that has been interesting in my own work. I've met people's parents and my clients' perceptions of their parents and my experience of them Obviously, they've aged, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in some cases. So, they've grown and matured. And I'm also showing up as an adult. But those memories as a child with your parent are so strong that it really colors. They live on, yeah. Um, how we see our parents. So, uh, I hate to say goodbye and bring this to a close because this has been so darn enjoyable for me. Uh so I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. I want to have you back on the podcast in the future. <laughs> I'd love to come back. And uh, Daniel, as we wrap this conversation up, what's a parting piece of wisdom or guidance you would offer? And if someone said, you know, I really like this guy, Daniel, I want to work with him. I'm a widow. I'm a military person. How do they find you? Yeah, well, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, my website, Wise Stewardship FP, as in financial planning. So wisestewardshipfp.com. My email, my contact information is there. There's a way to book a consultation directly there if people are interested to reach out and find out more. I also send out a weekly email. You can sign up there. Um, the thing that, like, parting wisdom. So for those of us who have been on this other side of grief, right, is I have some life lessons to consider here. And I actually thought about this ahead of time, like, you know, when you prepare ahead of time, so these ideas of death and money is taboo, but recognizing that it's the gift that you have today. And um, some of the exercises that were helpful for me long before Sarah ever walked the road that we did and is George Kinder has three life planning questions that were profoundly impactful for me. I found out about them even before I ever became like a financial planner and I love using them with clients. And the first one is like, imagine that you are financially set today. Like what would you change? And as it gets this idea of what is enough, defining the financial number, if you will, but lifestyle to be content and aiming for that and nothing beyond avoiding the hedonic treadmill that we so easily get on more, 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 more that does not satisfy, right? And of course, for me, then I, of course, add on a, a spiritual element on top of that. And the second question delves into this idea. Imagine you have only five to 10 years left to live. You have a terminal illness, but won't be sick, but you have finite time. What are you going to do with it, right? Um, gets this idea, for me, spiritually, like life is a vapor. It appears for a little time, then is gone. Like live, we even talked about it, live fully in the present. And the last one is imagine you have 24 hours left to live. Instead of looking forward, now you look back. What did you miss? What regrets would be there? 
what did the world not get of you? What would be missed? You know, and, and thinking through those and, you know, if you have the ability to do it with a thinking partner who goes through that guide, that life planning exercise and have that conversation with your spouse and think through it on your own and use that as a way to balance that tension. We've referenced it several times. So the present, the past, the future, and use that align money with what's important to you. And um, I'm confident that that will be a powerful help to each of the listeners. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful to hear you say that my wife and I are actually taking time to retreat with someone that's, that is a kinder life planner this weekend because we're at our own transitional point. And these questions have been ones that I've, I've been aware of, but haven't really sat with. And so I'm looking forward to sitting with those for her and I, and, um, so grateful for the person that you are and will continue to grow into. You serve the community so well. Thank you, Daniel. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise, Ed, it's been a pleasure chatting. I feel like we've covered so much ground and I hope it's a help. I trust that it is. Take care, man. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Ed.